Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. We are joined once again by Sam from the channel Games as Literature. It's been Hi, a while since we've had you on. And yeah, I, I've, we, we've yeah. had you on, t- I think, twice before. And both times, I really, really liked the conversation. Um, you have played Spec Ops, and you did a great video on it. Or was it like a year ago? Uh, closer to two, I think. Two I'm years ago? I'm certain mm. on that, yeah. A year yeah. or two. So what inspired you to, to make that video real quick? What, what is it about this game that you oh, love gosh. so much? <laughs> That's a big question. Oh. It sure is. <laughs> uh... Spec Ops is a game that has a lot of ideas, not just about the subject matter it tackles, like imperialism and war and violence and things like that, but also about the state of video games at the time it was made. It's very much Mm. a critical response to the prevalence of military shooters because mm-hmm. they absolutely ruled the gaming world at the time this game was released. Um, right, yep. I'm, I'm happy to say I don't know that that's the case now as much as it nope. used to be, but it's certainly... Not as much, no. Yeah. Now um, it's, uh, well, okay, it's less military. It's more like Fortnite and things yeah, like that. Right. Battle um, Royale like it's kind still, of games. Yeah, it kind of moved. Yeah. It's still similar, though. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, I still got some problems with the place it's in, I guess, suppose, but honestly, yeah. I'd rather that than, like... American military industrial complex propaganda yeah, sure. and critically being swallowed by a bunch of gamers. So, you know, uh, but it, it's a game that's, yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> it's a game that's very aware of what it is and intentionally trying to criticize its own genre mm. in a way that I think is really interesting. And then just to add to the reasons I really wanted to make that video, I think it's a very misunderstood game. A lot of people have a very, I think, at least mm. surface reading of it and they take the player critical elements as the game just saying like haha aren't you a terrible person for doing the thing we made you do yeah, i feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. if you think about it a little bit deeper than that there's a lot more to it and that's not at all the issue mm. but a lot of people you know that's one of those critiques that feels deep itself and i feel like a lot of people just stop there and so yeah, I, right. I really wanted to kind of put my perspective out there on what the game actually does and why it is actually kind of brilliant which yeah. a lot of people have written about Spec Ops the Line being special and brilliant. I'm not the first to do that, but sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I I gotta tell you, as I was doing some research, reading some developer quotes, trying to get a sense for what their inspirations were and why they wanted to make this game, I am like extremely excited to play it. Like yeah, because I, I saw some of the the sentiment that you were just describing where I mean, even when we announced that we were going to be talking about spec ops, there were people coming in with that kind of thing. Like, Oh, this game, you know, uh, trying to make you feel horrible for killing like <laughs> game NPCs or whatever. And I was like, really? Hey, like, hey at least there's that. one game that does that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I mean, so, we've seen that that kind of sentiment is still really common. People responded to The Last of Us 2 in a similar way, which yeah, I, yeah. I, I have problems with The Last of Us 2, but I think that in that case also, that's kind of a misunderstanding of what the game is doing. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. And, and based on what I've been reading, like like you're saying, I think that was n- not the point at all. Um, and so that's why I like to do developer interviews and read about the game before we play it so that when we're yeah. doing the analysis, when we're trying to critique, okay, you know, 
what is working and what's not, we have in mind kind of what they were going for. It's, it can guide yeah. you a little bit better to stronger critiques, I think. Yeah. So I, so I want to jump into I actually that have a, a copy of uh, Significant Zero, the book that Walt Williams wrote about yes. making Spec Ops the line. I have oh, a copy yes. signed by him. I should have oh, gotten it. Cool. Nice, nice. <laughs> no, no, I, that's great because I... I, I quotes from that book. Yeah, oh, I yeah. decided not to read it yet for this episode because i've i was warned by one of our patrons that there are some spoilers in there oh yeah and so yeah. i wanted to read it after having finished the game first yeah that's um, a good call. but that's that's awesome so maybe next week uh i'll have time to have read that too mm-hmm. um but anyway uh so let's get into the dev history here a little bit so um the developer of the game was a company called Jaeger Development. They're based in Jaeger. Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And the publisher and IP holder is 2K Games. Now, what I found really interesting is that it's not necessarily a shared lineage, but it's it it's uh, kind of adjacent to the development of Bioshock. Hmm. Um, one of the one of the lead writers on the game was a 2K employee who was like kind of sent over to start working is Walt Williams sent over to start working on uh, this game. And he had been, I think like an assistant producer on the first Bioshock. And wow, so, okay. yeah. So we did a podcast on Bioshock a few months ah. back. Um, and he mm. describes how inspired he was by the way Ken Levine worked and how, mm lofty their goals were for doing something more with this game and uh, you know making it more into an art piece right than just you know like having fun shooting people and that that was one of among many things a big inspiration for how they approached this yeah the lineage from spec from a bioshock to this is honestly pretty there were a lot of parallels especially like they're both games that kind of rely on some level on the way that people tend to go through these games without thinking too critically about them. Yes, right. yes exactly. that and turn it back around on them. So I can absolutely yeah. see that, yeah. yeah. And, is, and it, is it just a coincidence that they're both, both those games are produced by 2K? No, I, that's kind of the, the, the thing I took away from this is that yeah. it seems that 2K from about the mid-2000s, maybe into the early 2010s, seemed to be at sort of the upper executive level very open to handing off like a, a, the 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 liberty to the developers to just like okay make the game you want to make yeah and you know they cool. like in the one caveat to that in this instance was that they forced multiplayer into the game <laughs> um, oh really and uh. the the lead designer Corey Davis was hugely against that and I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute hmm. but um I was aside from that incredible quote from him about that <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> That aside from that, though, um, they kept feeling like, oh, we're pushing this too far. We're going to get a lot of, you know, uh, we're going to get a lot of direction from 2K saying, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. And they were like, no, no, go ahead. And so they explained why they were doing it. Um, So it seemed for the most part that 2K during that time was pretty uh, open to allowing the developers to make the kinds of games they wanted to make and didn't try to, like, you know, mingle or, or put their, their hand into that process too much. So, cool. um, But of all the developers here that I kind of wanted to touch on, there's, there's three in particular that I think, um, well, that I have a lot of quotes from, but were, were kind of like 
the masterminds behind this particular game. So Corey Davis, who was like the lead designer for the game, um, and also the director. Mm. And then we've got two writers, Richard Piercy and mm. Walt Williams. Now, what's interesting is that both of them are Americans, um, and I think they're both from Texas in a really similar area where they saw a lot of like big dust storms, which plays a huge role mm. into why they decided the setting that they did and everything like that. But originally cool. they had German writers working on the game. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. Because it's a German company and it was yeah. just like not really coming together the way they were wanting it to. And so they, well, Walt Williams was a 2K employee they brought over, but Richard Piercy was actually a lawyer who had quit his oh. job and was like, I think game writing is something that I can do and got an opportunity. And he, he talks a lot about how his uh, education as an attorney, like helped him in his writing process. But okay, um, so those are kind of, the, gosh, how do you pull that? Yeah, off? <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, those are the three guys I think that uh, we'll focus on the most in this, but yeah. I got this quote here talk, kind of talking about uh, how, the process got started and how Jaeger even got um, involved at all. So basically, so 2K had, th this franchise was actually like a long running franchise before yeah. this. I did not know that. I had never heard <laughs> of any Spec Ops game other than Spec Ops Online, but there were like Most eight titles. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a real like low budget series and mm -hmm. it was like almost like a SOCOM sort of like. Yeah, it was very uh, much like knockoff SOCOM. In right. like the PS1 era, mostly, yeah. Yeah, and and so 2K had this sort of middling, if even maybe less than that, little franchise called Spec Ops that was going nowhere. <laughs> and they mm -hmm. wanted to sort of relaunch that or, or reboot it, do something real different with it, right? And so this, this developer, this developer Jaeger, came to 2K with a pitch for this, like, sci-fi shooter they had in mind that had uh, like squad mechanics and things like that. And they were like, okay, we're not necessarily interested in that, but we really want to do this reboot of our spec ops property with like a really dark uh, kind of narrative driven, uh, you know, story based uh, focus versus what it was before. And so Corey Davis was like, oh, that, that sounds awesome. So <laughs> it says here, uh, from the beginning, publisher 2K Games wanted to make something different. It wanted to revitalize the Spec Ops franchise, so it put out feelers to various studios looking for pitches. Corey Davis worked with the team at Jaeger to answer that call. And he yeah. says, I put together a pitch for something that was much more sci-fi. It had sort of a future soldier element to it, but it did take place in Dubai, and it did have some of the elements uh, we were playing with. Davis then went to Monolith, where he spent just under two years helping with a game called Condemned 2 Bloodshot, which I've never oh. heard of. <laughs> Have you oh, played yeah. that? Um, I haven't played the sequel. The first Condemned was an Xbox 360 launch title. It was a horror oh, game. Um, okay. Pretty much like, all right, nothing incredible, but you know, yeah. solid, good. Um, I heard decent things about the second one. I just never played it. <laughs> yeah, so I guess he had worked on that. And then after putting that project to bed, he took a week off in Mexico. That's where 2K found him. It wanted to talk to him in San Francisco Bay Area about its spec ops and Jaeger's pitch um, about making art. Davis got on a plane and he says they wanted to do something that was really serious and dark and mature as a take on a war story. And so he became very, very interested at that point. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about 
what inspired the setting uh, and and the whole. Uh, Kason, I'm, I'm actually curious if you had known about this before. Um, yeah. The 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 myth about like the Persian soldiers that went missing in that huge um, like the dust, dust storm. storm and like they they there were a couple guys who found or believed that they discovered like the skeletal skeletal remains of this army. <laughs> no, I don't think I've heard of this before. Okay, it's crazy. So 525 BC, a Persian king named Cambyses II sent a massive army from Luxor to the city of Siwa. Cambyses was angry that the oracle at Siwa had rejected his claim to the Egyptian throne. He wanted the oracle destroyed. According to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus? Herodotus, yeah. 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 Cambyses' army traveled through the desert of Egypt for seven days, then vanished without a trace. Herodotus believed the soldiers were enveloped by a massive sandstorm and perished, Yet modern archaeologists have been searching for the remains of Cambyses' lost army for a century with little to show for their efforts. Many academics believe Herodotus' story was just a myth. And then we've got Angelo and Alfredo Cast... It's, like, it's an Italian name. Castiglioni? Castiglioni, um, yeah, Castiglioni, yeah. I think that's <laughs> yeah. right. They claim that Cambyses' army existed, perished exactly how Herodotus claimed, and further that they know alone know exactly where that army lies oh they alone huh okay <laughs> yeah <Come> right <laughs> convenient interesting so angelo and alfredo brothers and archaeologists archaeologists first discovered the trail of what they believed to be the remains of the cambyses army in 1996 when they found a large rock formation in the high desert they believed would uh, would have been used by the persian soldiers as a shelter from the storm further excavation and exploration led to the discovery in 2002 of a mass grave in the sand complete with Bronze Age armor, shattered water vessels, and more. So, <laughs> that was... Um, what's funny is, like, that particular story was sort of like something that was in the writers' minds on top of the fact that they're from, I think, like, East Texas or something, or, sorry, West Texas, yeah, where they would get dust storms all the time. We got a few when we lived in Arizona every in once Phoenix, in a while. Yeah, you'd get like these crazy dust storms, right? Um, but then there was like a freak crazy dust storm that happened in Germany. Really? Uh, I can't remember oh. what the date was, what? but like it was so bad that there was there was like a truck that was carrying like uh, it was it was transporting I don't know some kind of flammable. Uh, I, do I have it here exactly what it was? I don't want to get it wrong. Anyway, it like lit a bunch of cars on fire in the street and like eight people died Holy in this event. Cow. And so like the combination of all of these things, this like myth of the Cambyses army, the experience of the two riders living in Texas, and then this crazy event happening in Germany led to them saying like, we want to do a story where these soldiers have kind of like Dubai has been sort of destroyed by right. this event after event after event of these crazy sandstorms and it's cut them off entirely. And so we have these soldiers going in trying to find out what's going on and uh, they kind of get lost in the sandstorm kind of a thing. So that's what served as sort of the basis for the plot. I thought that was pretty cool. That's yeah. really cool. That's really cool. I love it when, um, 
when people are able to take old myths and recast them in in a new skin. Yeah. And and two of the leading inspirations for this two other stories were um Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. Right. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. we'll probably talk about a little bit here, but then Apocalypse Now. And Apocalypse Now is the same kind of thing. It's not necessarily yeah. an old myth, but it's like a a sort of loosely remixed version of Heart of Darkness. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's based on Heart of Darkness as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um have either of you guys either read Heart of Darkness or seen the yes. movie Apocalypse Now? So I have not seen Apocalypse Now, though, which is funny because you would think that I would have, but I have not. <laughs> um, I have read I read Heart of Darkness pro- probably 20 years ago. Oh, really? Uh, for ago. school. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was in class. So, um, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't remember as much about it as I should, but I got the general the general idea. It's uh, during King Leopold II, I think, and it's Belgium... It's this Belgium guy going going to Congo for the first time and the culture shock and the all the experiences that he has and the way he sees the way other people live. Um, you know, it's just it's fascinating. Uh, his perspective on it. Yeah. It, what, what was his name? Was it Malcolm or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Um, and then he, he's going after Kurtz. Yes. Uh, Kurtz. That's right. Who had kind of like ingrained himself in the in the culture of the. African yeah. People yeah, yeah. In a, yeah. 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 And that—that's where Apocalypse Now, I think, has an uh, um, an interesting parallel. There's this kind of a similar thing. He's looking for somebody who's kind of set himself up as like a god in this like tribal village, something like yeah, that. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, the the lineage of like you know these three stories, Apocalypse, um, Heart of Darkness to Apocalypse Now to Spec Ops, is something I found really interesting. So I yeah read Apocalypse Now. It, I'm just gonna keep mixing these up. <laughs> I read Heart of Darkness and then watched Apocalypse Now when I was prepping for the video that I did on Spec mm. Ops. And it is interesting because it, it is pretty literally just like retelling after retelling, putting into a different context. Apocalypse yeah. Now is quite literally just Heart of Darkness, but set during the Vietnam War. And then right. Spec Ops is very much kind of a mix of the two set in a theoretical disaster in Dubai. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of parallels between them, a lot of things that all of them kind of interact with each other in interesting ways and respond to the previous ones in weird ways. It's mm. the relationship between them is really interesting for sure. I don't know if I'll have time to read Heart of Darkness by next week, but I think I am going to watch Apocalypse now. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Um, while also playing the game to sort of see some of the details. But it seems to me, based on what I know, what little I know of the story, uh, that John, I think it's John Conrad, is sort of like the Kurtz character, and yeah. then Walker is kind of the. Is it Malcolm? Did I get that name right? Anyway, that character who's going in trying to look for him. But yeah. um, anyway, uh, so you can kind of see how they've sort of remixed that, and like you're saying, I think it would be interesting to look at the two a little more closely and kind of see yeah. similarities. I'm sure we'll be talking about it later because yeah, there's a lot of sure. a lot of meaningful kind of commentary and such in how the game addresses the stuff it's adapting. So yeah, yeah. Cool. This next quote fun. that I have here, um, I think it starts to kind of address some of the stuff we were talking about a little earlier about um, people's, you know, their reading on the game and maybe criticism of it for how it like tries to make the player feel bad or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, It says, we wanted Walker to be the average guy, said Corey Davis. It was really tough for us to do that and also have special forces training and do all this crazy cool stuff that he's able to do. 
but we really wanted him to be somebody that the average person could relate to. We needed a blank canvas from which we could evolve. So basically we wanted to shred your average guy. And by the time you get to the end, we really wanted to express as strongly as possible what can happen to the psychological state of somebody who goes through these horrible events. And they even talked yeah. a little bit about Jacob's Ladder being um, a inspiration for this the in movie? that sense. Yeah, the movie Jacob's oh, Ladder. Sick. Uh, being in, in this particular sense, the psychological side of it, right? Yeah. Um, when we did Silent Hill 2 a little while back, um, we watched Jacob's Ladder uh, for that analysis because that was also greatly inspired by Jacob's Ladder. Have you seen Jacob's Ladder? I haven't actually. You, you uh, need to see that movie. You have okay. to. It's life changing. It is gonna... so good. Okay. <laughs> it's amazing. We we actually ended up due to having watched that for the Silent Hill analysis, just doing a whole podcast, a, a whole series on just the movie Jacob's Ladder. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm oh, editing it now. Okay. It'll go out on YouTube um, later this month or maybe next month. Yeah. All right. It, we'll it's... have to see where it's. Streaming, I think I found it on. Where did I find it? I don't. I think it was Amazon was where I found it streaming before, but I don't know if it's still there. Oh, stop it, Google. That's not what I wanted. Ah. Well, yeah, I I think you might be right about that. Uh, Yeah. But when my phone starts actually (laughs) working, I might be able to find it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really interested to see what you think about it. Uh, I think, but for both Case and I, it ended up being like pretty much our favorite movie we'd ever seen in our whole lives (laughs) i would say and it's amazing to think that anything could top you know like (laughs) the fellowship of the ring or something (laughs) a a a movie like that that i saw when i was 14 and that you know i have all these connections to and then seeing jacob's ladder is just like wow really really incredible yeah Yeah. i have have it's on amazon prime so yeah i'll try and watch good there you go before we do it's on youtube movies too i think oh is it really yeah, okay. so Google cool. Play or something like that. Uh, Walt also, uh, he was asked that, uh, probably in the same interview that you were reading. Um, he said that uh, he, his brother came back from war. Yes. And he oh. said seeing, seeing his brother and friend come back and seeing little differences between them, uh, playing the military shooters always felt a little off, right? So he, yeah. he says, because it was not a representation of what those people I knew actually went through. You yeah. didn't go over there like Captain America and kill all the bad guys and become a hero because you killed everyone. It wasn't like that. It was really lacking something. It was really glossed over, sort of Hollywood, especially when you look at the movies and what movies of war have become, like in the 70s and 80s. And he kind of gives some examples. But he's like, I, I didn't want to do that. Um, he wanted a movie where you actually had people expressing their actual experiences of war, right? And he said that, what, he... in books and movies and there's all sorts of media where that has been addressed right but he thought that in video games there was not really a game that addressed the 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 actual like terror and the the issues that soldiers deal with in war uh adequately so he's like well there's a hole in the market so he decided to do it himself yeah which is interesting to me because there has long been an argument that that would effectively be impossible uh, I forget who, there was some director or something that long ago said there's no such thing as an anti-war war movie because by mm. capturing it in fi- right. on film in a compelling way, you are inherently glorifying it. 
I, I think thought of kind that, of yeah. reductive personally. Um, yeah. But similarly, a lot of people have said the same about video games. You have to make the game fun to play. And so yeah. by doing so, you are inherently making war a cool, fun thing. I do think, though, right. that a number of games have approached violence in a way that, in various different ways, that kind of prove that wrong, that it is possible. You have to do it very conscientiously and carefully, but it is possible to do it. And I, yeah. I think this is probably one of the first games I can think of that really managed to pull it off, but there are a number of others and probably some before it, too. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, that's that's a topic that I've been mulling over a little bit. Uh, yeah, me too. There will probably be a video later. I have kind of a, an essay planned on this for does a video game, like, need to be fun? <laughs> right. right? Um, yeah. Or are there other ways to get across, kind of for the reason you're talking about. Uh, yeah. But anyways, I'll, I'll get onto that later. But That's a good point, because books um, and movies and documentaries, and there's a lot of other media that can get away with that. It's just yeah. in a game, right? And there's got to be a way to do it. Video yeah. games are the only one where we tend to think that fun is like the main and only thing yeah. it has to do. And I can well, think of a number of games that aren't fun, but are compelling. Yeah. Like this war of mine, one of the most stressful experiences. That is not fun. <laughs> I, I just, it broke me. It was yeah. really good. It was interesting. You know, it not being fun didn't make it bad. It just yes. made me want to, you know, sleep and yeah. not play it again because it was stressful. <laughs> well, exactly. But but then you'll pick up uh, a, a documentary or a movie that's horrific and, and mm -hmm. torture yourself by watching a movie, but you won't yeah. do that again with a game. It's just there's something, there's something yeah. there. The participatory yeah. element has got to have yeah. something to do with it. But yeah. Exactly. Um, so I had another short, uh, interview, um, segment here where Piercy, who was the other writer, uh, had just kind of started his career, right? Cause he had quit being an attorney and he found friendship with Corey Davis, the director. We've been working together since 2010 and we're huge horror fans. Spec Ops is a horror game in a lot of ways. So that was something I think was important to mention as far as uh, in, intention and expectations go. And that's a ah, little good, bit, good. that's where I feel even a little bit that Jacob's Ladder inspiration is coming in too. Because, again, I haven't seen Apocalypse now, but I don't think that's necessarily a horror movie. I'm sure there's certainly horrific things that are... That's what I've heard. Uh, you know, shown on, on screen, but like... yeah. Jacob's Ladder is in kind of like that psychological horror genre. So more yeah. squarely, I would think. Yeah. Um, okay, so this quote, I think, kind of touches on a little bit what we were talking about earlier, too. People are not, or people are not going to get mad at you if what you do is consistent with the game world. If what happens, if the shocking moment is adequately prepared for you to understand that this type of game that this is the type of game that you you've bought into it's going to get progressively worse and we're going to talk about whether or not your actions are appropriate or not your characters are going to talk about it the game talks to you we completely break it down with game screens and load screens and whatnot we talk to you about it i think it has to be consistent if it came out of nowhere and i don't want to be critical of another game here but the airport scene in modern warfare People were pissed off about that. It took you out of the game and jarred you because it doesn't fit that game world. And not only does it not fit that game world, you don't get to react like the characters you were playing would. Mm -hmm. 
I think mm. that if you're going to set something up like that, you have to be ready for the possibility that people will go through the shooter as the main character and continue with the mission. But you need to allow them to feel like they have some moral agency in a situation like that. So that particular philosophy about the criticism of modern warfare was a really big concern for them as they were making this. They wanted to make sure that at all these points where something really bad like this was going to happen that would be shocking for the audience playing the game, that there was some kind of choice in the matter. But they didn't want to make it like these binary, like Mass Effect type choices. Renegade, Paragon, good or bad choice. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they didn't please, want to... Please label it for me. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to present it like that, where you just no. choose option one or two. They wanted to make it really sort of like environmental almost. It's just if you think in a different way and you just walk over here or try this instead, there's actually a different way that this scene can go. So there are a number of scenes in the game that will play out differently if you just... Uh, you know, try to kind of experiment and go out of your way to do it differently. There are other places, and he talks about this, where, okay, like the only way forward is to, for it to happen like this, right? But there are a number of spots where that's not the case, and you can play it a little bit differently. That comparison so, is interesting to me, because you're right, there are those scenes where you have, you know, different ways that you can interact to do different things, but there's also like the general sense it's probably not too much of a spoiler considering we've been talking about like heart of darkness and stuff that yeah. the game gets kind of progressively darker and progressively reframes your own actions as it goes mm -hmm. and that kind of thing is not you know there's a turning point a scene that a lot of people talk about but it's not the only yeah. point the game progressively basically questions whether you've been doing the right thing and you don't have a choice for a lot of that the story's going where it's going because you're doing what you're doing but it also does set that up and it's largely the point whereas mm -hmm. i think a lot of the criticism at least a lot of the surface criticism about uh no russian very much had to do with the fact that seen in a vacuum it doesn't like I, I knew a mom who was like oh my son was playing this game and he just like shot a bunch of people in an airport and i was like the game knows that's wrong yes <laughs> like you know if your kid isn't picking up on that and thinks it's just fun to shoot innocent people, I feel like that's your problem. Yeah, <laughs> But right. at the same time, like, scene separated from everything else, I can understand why someone would look at No Russian and think, oh, wow, this game's just about how fun it is to shoot people. Yeah. And, and I think that Spec Ops does do a lot of work to make sure that when darker things are happening and even done by the player, that it is very clearly not supposed to be fun or cool. Yeah, right. Right. But it's yeah. there. And that yeah. just goes along with the, the concept that, um, well, games are supposed to just be for fun. And that's just so heavily ingrained in your mind mm -hmm. that when you see someone doing something, it's like, oh, they're having fun doing it. Therefore, it's bad. They shouldn't have fun doing that thing. Yeah. And games are just fun. It's almost like that's the block that needs to kind of be overcome. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. That assumption that if it happens in a game, it's because it's going to be fun. Which, as you yes. pointed out, is silly because that doesn't happen. You know, no one watches someone die in a movie and is like, we're supposed to enjoy seeing that character die? Like, no. Yeah, we're supposed exactly. to be sad about it or horrified. Exactly. You, know, you can have those different feelings. but Just because yeah. some piece of content happens to appear, it doesn't mean that they're 
condoning that thing. And yeah. in many cases, it's the opposite. They're trying mm-hmm. to, you know. Uh, I think no, we have a long ways to go on that regarding yeah. video games. Like oh, I work totally. With, I, I work with kids have for the last couple of years, and it's been so weird to see how many of them know what Undertale is and know specifically who Sans is and know the song mm-hmm. Megalovania. And it's so weird yeah. all the times they're like, isn't he like super hard to beat? I'm like, I don't know. Because if you play Undertale right, you never fight him. Right. Like, <laughs> you're not supposed to murder everyone in Undertale. Like, exactly. You know, these concepts don't come across to them. It's just like, oh, there's the cool guy that I fight with the cool music. Like, you know. And then I kill him and he cries, but it's okay. It's fun. Yeah. 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 Yep. Right. Ways to go on that. Well, so, I, th- there's another quote here that I think is relevant to what you're talking about with the oh, criticism okay. here. Um, and the you might have it too, Mike, because this is, I think, a, a big mm-hmm. one. But um, this is uh, when you're talking about. Uh, the criticism of the game being that uh, the game makes you make bad choices, like the game mm. pushes you to do a bad choice and then criticizing you for making the bad choice. Um, I'm going to read this line here, and you guys tell me what you think. Okay. And this is from Williams, uh, the yeah, writer. Walt Williams, yeah. They tell you when you're in dangerous situations, don't be a hero. Being a hero gets people killed. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why you're training so much into muscle memory so that when you know when when it hits the fan that training kicks in and everyone knows what other people are going to do they know who to follow what choices to make because of all this training and being heroic has a tendency to go outside of that training and do something that is unexpected that is possibly going to do a lot more bad than good and that's a big theme within this game now i have not played the game but i have a question here after reading this uh is this something along the lines of like the game's forcing you to make wrong or bad decisions, but at the same time, it's like, are these the decisions that you were trained to do? And and could that be part of the theme of the game? No, I think it's actually supposed to be more along the lines of the character is disobeying his orders so in he order is trying to, to try to help more people. Yeah. He's, so yeah. he's trying to be a hero. I see. Yeah, okay. exactly. And it's more that this, we're going to have to get into this more later because it's a central yeah, yeah. thing, but like, the the whole thing is less in the first place you are doing bad you are making bad choices and that's what we're being critical of and more that it's presuming the player is going to be going through just like all right that's the next objective that's what i'm supposed to do that's what i'll get the story moving in a good direction and then you know it slowly starts being like no like you're just uncritically going from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint assuming you're in the right because you're the big hero with the big gun and that's not how this is going to go down yeah interesting interesting. and and i think what's interesting about that too is you see this almost as a cliche particularly in a lot of like blockbuster films where they tell the character don't try to be a hero yeah and then they do and it always works out it always works out like that is basically the opposite of what they try to train you to think like in the military and stuff like that, right? Like yeah. you're that going out of your way to <laughs> do what you think will will you know play hero or whatever actually ends up having horrible dire consequences a lot of the time. Yeah. And so uh, I wish that we would see this approach to that more often. But that that's actually what started to excite me the most about playing this was the fact that they're going to be exploring that, doing what you think is the right thing and and so often i mean you know all of us here like armchair sort of philosophers or uh, uh monday morning quarterbacks yeah, can yeah. sit there and criticize you know people out there in the world doing what they're doing 
thinking that we have this moral high ground or we would have done it this way. And I think so often we deceive ourselves in that kind of thinking. And if we were the ones making those decisions, those big decisions like that, we would probably end up hurting a lot more people than we realized. And so I I love that this is going to kind of dive into that a little bit. Uh, That's one of the, one of the big things I'm looking forward to the most is seeing how they handle (laughs) that. Yeah. There, there's an idea in the military, right? One of the reasons why they don't want you to be a hero um, is that your your thinking is too big in certain instances, right? Like maybe you're you're trying to save the whole world, and if you do this, you'll save the whole world. But really, your duty is just to protect the guy standing that right next to you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's your job. And if you see some other thing, and oh, if I do this just right, and if I can, then but then in order to do that, you have to abandon the guy you're right next to, right? Like there's yeah. um there's a there's like a, a chain or there's a, a fractal kind of effect right that you do the best thing for your small like uh, team and then that yes. team is doing the best thing for the squadron and the squadron is doing the best thing for the the unit and the unit's doing yeah. the best thing for the platoon or i, I don't know i don't I'm probably the, the actual it all wrong. terms <laughs> you know what i mean right the small yeah. the individual and then it scales up and eventually it does scale into the world and you are a part of that thing that is like moving up to this massive thing and if you don't agree yeah. what's happening well unless you're drafted maybe just get out of the military <laughs> um but if you're going to be in the military you're 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 giving yourself up to that to that goal right yeah. and that goal is uh at least to the benefit of your country right and so right <laughs> yeah. theoretically yeah you're right it usually i want to say often to, it, it almost <laughs> never works not the way that people think. um but hey, you know, every now and then it does so, right? <laughs> um, and then it's like, well, wait, why is why why does my country have an interest in this? Like, why do I have to be doing this thing? But it's like there's a whole plan. And anyways, uh, going along with this here, if if you are going to step out of your spot to just uh, flatten the hierarchy, I mean that's what I'm saying to flatten the whole hierarchy, to just say that I am me world, boom, that's it, I yeah. save world, and then we're done. Instead of I participate in a group that's helping another group that's building on a greater thing and it fractals out. And then that whole thing is supposed to be helping the world. Um, When you step out in an individualistic, like, you know, I'll do it all by myself kind of way. um, Probably not the best thing to do just in life or in general, right? Like if you're not helping your neighbor, why why do you think that you have advice for the whole government of your entire country on what they should be doing? Right. And, mm-hmm. oh, I can help. I can fix all the problems of my country. But like, you know, your neighbor's lawn is a mess and you could mow it for them, but you don't. Or there's a, somebody needs help pulling out the trash and you're not doing it. Or your local. This was a thing for me because I remember I was getting all upset about some national political thing some time ago. And as I was driving uh, to the, uh, right past the school where my daughter was about to start going to kindergarten, um, I realized, well, I've known this for a while, but it's never really hit me. There's no sidewalk. There is no sidewalk going from my house to that school. I live very close to the school and, you know, we still drive her. She doesn't walk yet, but I want her to walk at some point. It's way more in my interest to talk to my local leaders, Mm -hmm. local representatives around like where I live. So like, hey, can we get like a thing so that kids aren't walking in the middle of the road going to school? And then I know, but I'm, I'm all occupied with this like national level thing and I'm missing the, the clear thing that would benefit me more than anything else right there in front of me because yeah. I'm worried about this larger level thing, right? 
Yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't but, think about local organizing and how important that is to at all. Exactly. At all. Yeah. Because everyone wants to be a hero and save the whole world. But it's like, well, hold yeah. on. Just like try to save your your family first. Try to save <laughs> like your friend or your neighborhood, you know, yeah. before you just like hopping out and try to conquer the whole your world because you local know community. you know best. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I wanted to read something Drake Chandler saying here. So he had served in the military. He says, if you oh, do good. something on your own, you put your team at risk. Military leaders know people don't care about themselves, but care about other people. So we're taught to follow orders um, as to not put other people in danger. And then he said, Cason uh, was actually going up the, the order correctly. Good, <laughs> um, good. And then said, platoon uh, goes to company. Self. <laughs> Self, team, squad, platoon, company, battalion, brigade. There you go. Is, is I didn't go all the way, it. but okay, okay, okay. It's so you're actually pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there's just a lot of quotes here about choice. So I, I might read a couple of these. I might skip a couple of them. But <laughs> Williams wanted to build on that feeling of choice with consequences. He wanted to create a game where the moral choices offered by the game's story were less of a do thing A, get reward B variety, and more tied into the narrative that itself would be continually evolving based on the choices you make. Now, I, I, I was sort of skeptical about this because I, I mean, I've been playing games my whole life and I know that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of choice and consequence is really tough. So right, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this, like how much of that do you think is really there? Where... Be... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You would be right to be skeptical of that specifically. I do. I'm going to try not to stand on this soapbox for too long because it's one of my main <laughs> ones. But like, okay. there are a lot of ways for choices in video games to be significant aside from changing how the story goes afterwards. Mm. There are a lot of instances where it can help you to inform your own thoughts on the character, on the scenario. Uh, you know, all, all these things matter or can matter with how the choice is presented and what happens with it, even if it doesn't change the ending or whatever, right? Mm, sure. And Spec Ops very much, there are consequences for the choices you make, but choice is not a major part of it. For the most part, the game is sort of a commentary on what we accept as normal in the things that games have us do. Mm. So... There are choices, and I can feel like sort of that attempt within it. But when it comes down to it, the impact of those choices is more about how you are approaching what the game is giving you than it mm. is about changing how the game turns out as a result. Uh, gotcha, um, gotcha. Yeah, but there I mean, are like, there, there are, are like four endings, right? I was going to say there are a couple yeah. different endings. Oh, um, I didn't know all, that. Good. They all happen based on your choices at the very end. Yeah, like the last uh, choice okay. affects. Yeah. yeah, there's like one, one or two four. major choice situations at the very end of the game. And in some cases, like when this happened in Mass Effect 3, I was like, come on, I've been making choices that build up to this for three games. But in and other cases like that this, one. <laughs> yeah, but in other cases like this, yeah. it really is a, more of a question of you have seen this, you've been through it. Now, what will you do? How will you respond having mm. experienced this? And Got I think it. It, I think it works really well personally, but it'll, it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's good because it's always a matter of perspective, right? Uh, or it's it's a matter of expectations and perspective. Because if you buy Spec Ops thinking you're going to get Modern Warfare Five or whatever, um, you're you're going to be disappointed, right? But you you have to. I feel like it's important to kind of know what you're getting into. In some ways, I think this game wanted to surprise people. 
with yeah. this, right? And but that uh, and that's fine if that's how they want to do it. It's probably a good selling point. That way, you trick people into buying your game who did not want people, this kind of story. I do know people for whom it works too, who say that like good. they bought this just thinking they wanted a shooter and then ended up like rethinking everything that they thought about shooters yeah, and how you right. play games. And that's right. very much the point. Good, yeah. good. I think that's less great. common now probably than it used to be. I feel like games have gotten better at, you know sort of this self-examinatory language in a sense mm -hmm. uh, than they were back then Pro partially yeah. because of this game probably but yeah. uh, oh that's probably true but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so he goes on to talk about some of the experiences with like play testers he says i remember when we first did a press demo for this and we did our first hands-on this is um uh walt williams speaking um i think it was the second or third guy who sat down to play the game he got to the choice that's in there and he paused the game and turned to us and goes, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and that was the first moment that it really clicked in our heads. We knew we wanted to do something that did the moral choices differently, but we hadn't yeah. realized how ingrained we had all become. So, so it wasn't um, obvious what, what he should do. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Um, that next one here. Let's see. Oh, this is just talking about how he worked with Ken Levine. I've kind of already gone over that already. Yeah. Um, everyone, I know, go ahead. I have a relevant one for what we're talking about right now. Okay. Um, that something that Williams had said, uh, and this is, comes from. Uh, oh gosh, what is this? Because some of this is um, is editorialized by the writer himself. And he said that, and number. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think I'm quoting Williams directly with this, but some of it is in quotes. Um, he says that Williams wanted to put players into scenarios where bad things could happen to good people. And in the game they imagined, the list of good people would not necessarily include you. Mm. Now, that that's funny because who wants to who this is probably this this might be a thing with my kids as well, actually. Who wants to hear or tell or view or participate in a story where you're not the good guy? Mm. That would be pretty rare, right? You're following a character anyways. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how how deep these choices make, or how deep these choices go necessarily, to where maybe you can play it in a way to where you can be a good guy, or if the game kind of pushes you to not be a good guy. Um, we'll see. But I think it's interesting, at the very least, um, that there are you know a lot of times you'll think of the old Greek stories, and we always read the old ancient uh, myths and legends and stories and uh, fairy tales and things through the lens of like what was the moral of the story? That's a very Western way to read things. That's a very modern way to read things. Like, oh, what? Uh, because people, people, um, often when people read Greek mythology and they read about Zeus, they think they're hearing about a god who is an example for others to follow. Mm. That's not what's happened. That's not what those stories are. Like, we don't, yeah. we don't see the past uh properly because we try to see it all through modern our modern lens and we're like oh my gosh zeus is a horrible person oh they worship zeus that's horrible how could they well zeus isn't jesus like you've got this like christian like western lens through which you're viewing things and you're assuming that every story that includes a god the god is is a good guy you're assuming every hero is a good guy but they were exploring these themes you know thousands of years ago um in a very deep way and a lot of the stories were not about good guys like the main character was not necessarily a good guy a moral th these stories were not meant to just teach a moral the way that yeah. we kind of think of the use for, sh for stories now and it's part of the idea of utilitarianism the idea that all stories have to have like a use like what's the point what's the point 
And sometimes the point is difficult to locate, right? Uh, but yeah. it's not always that this is how you should live your life, right? Right. Um, and I feel like we've really just completely lost that in modernity. And in some ways, a lot of these writers are kind of trying to bring that back a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can learn more from a character than like, this is how you should always act or not, right? Like you can explore all sorts of deep things and stories that people um, have, I don't know, I feel like that your average person um, has kind of just not been exposed to for so long that it's very yeah. difficult for them to get back into that kind of, th that mode. Yeah, yeah. I, I think along those lines, um, that kind of segues really well into this uh, part of the interview because they were talking about how their perspectives as having lived outside the United States, right? Being international, yeah. having the team be international was like really huge as far as like the way that this ended up coming together. Um, okay. And I've, I've talked about this a little bit uh, in like the near Automata podcast we did, cool. right? The fact that um, I have been able to do some international travel now for work. Oh, yeah. I've been to Thailand. I've been yeah. to London. I've been to Guatemala. I'm going to Panama in a couple of weeks. Like, um, I've kind of been to these different places in the world. Your eyes, like, I, I feel like you can't help but have them open when you oh, have right. finally sort of, like, broken out of the bubble of the place that you were born and raised and yeah. seen the way that people live and the ideas that you had about it before you went there versus what the reality is. Um, yeah. it, it, it's, 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 I can't recommend it enough. I know it's not exactly easy and it can be expensive to travel, but, like, it's worth doing. It's no. worth like making the effort and the time to do it because, um, well, particularly for some of the things they say here. So he says, we're dealing with things that we all really care about. So there was some friction from time to time. Like we would battle with each other and argue with each other because we're calling into question people's worldviews. And obviously on the team, we're all not going to think alike. And the international perspective ended up helping us a lot as well. If the game was just Corey's direction, he's talking about himself, when I came into it, not having lived overseas, not having had a lot of these experiences and discussions with people who had different opinions than me, then the game would not have, or the game would have come out differently. And I think mm. it would have been much more one-sided and less well-informed. So I was really happy to be able to have an international experience on top of the, the sort of standard experience that you have in the dev process. We had 16 nationalities on this team, and a lot of these guys came from Whoa. completely different contexts than I did. That's pretty and that, cool. Yeah, that yeah. caused a lot of debate and argument. The debate that was really healthy uh, for the project ended up pushing us into an interesting direction that I'm really proud of. A lot of the ways that you experience things in the game come from, a, I would say, turmoil between the feelings of the team on these really difficult subjects. And if there wasn't that really strong turmoil, we wouldn't have pushed ourselves to do these things the way we did. We would have done them in a much cheaper way. Um, and that I think this kind of plays along to kind of bounce off what you were talking about there at the beginning of uh, what you said. Um, is the game trying to portray a bad person? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it's more nuanced than that. I think... What it's trying to do is show that a, a good person, someone who's trying to do what they think is right, you know, trying to play the hero because they feel like we can't just abandon these people in this situation. That would be wrong. We got to try to help someone with good intentions can do a lot of harm by not being informed about the choices they're making. 
Right? Interesting. Yeah. When even in, when you in, def in defense of the statement, he said the list of good people does not necessarily include you. It's yeah. It's yeah. not that it doesn't. It's just that it might not. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that again, that part of it, I think, is key to a lot of the criticism that Sam was bringing up earlier, too. It's like it's not trying to make you feel bad. <laughs> it's trying to open your mind to this idea that even if you think you're doing the right thing, and this is something we talk about all the time on the podcast. Mm -hmm. There's so much that we don't know. And there's so much we really believe we're right about that we don't have the proper context to truly understand. And so even if you have the best intentions, but if you, if you pursue headfirst into a situation and you're not informed on what's really happening there, you will make a choice that is going to have terrible consequences. Yeah. That, I think, is what this game is trying to drive at. Not, oh, it's, uh, you enjoy war shooters? Uh, that's so bad, you're terrible, you should feel awful about that. That's not what this game's <laughs> trying to say. <laughs> okay? There's <laughs> another really interesting angle to that. Um, I'll, I'll finally get to do my own woke quote in a minute, so this is exciting. Um, oh, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that in addition, because like we've talked about sort of the stories that inspired this one, but I think it's also worth mentioning that if you try to track the lineage of the type of story this game is trying to tell in an interactive sense, it's another one of those games that owes a lot to Shadow of the Colossus specifically, mm. wow. which is an interesting one because I can't think of, whenever I think of any game that's like really influential, I can think of a ton of knockoffs, right? Like a bunch of other games that try to do the same thing. I can count on one hand, assuming I can even think of any games that tried to do anything actually similar to Shadow of the Colossus, and yet, its influence is felt in so many different games and so many different game creators will say that it had an influence on them. And, mm -hmm. you know, just in terms of the, this is a game where the player character is not necessarily a hero doing the right thing, you know? Yeah. And that, that very much was one of those things that I feel Shadow of the Colossus was unique in its time for doing. Um, mm. And not in a, you know, there are games like a prototype or whatever, right? Where it's all like, ah, you have superpowers and murdering people is cool and fun. You know, like, <laughs> not, not that kind of like, it's fun to be the bad guy kind of thing. But like, you're right. cast as the hero, but that's not necessarily how it is in the long term. Um, and there's an element here of trusting in the game to lead you where you are supposed to go and congratulate you for succeeding as it does so. And Walt Williams has talked about that too. He, uh, at one point, uh, when talking about how games are usually designed, said, I, as the creator of a game, I am the minister of propaganda to the game's one true ruler, that person-shaped void we call the player. Like he, 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 he talks that. a lot about how these games are made to, that, that just that, you know, traditional game design is made to create the entire scenario around you yeah. so that whatever you do within it, whatever it leads you to do is something that you can uncritically accept as the thing you're supposed to do. And then the game will congratulate you and pat you on, pat you on the back for successfully doing it. Mm. And that kind of approach is something that he wanted to subvert in making this a scenario where the game is not really interested in telling you that you're doing a good job and you shouldn't necessarily trust that it's taking you in the direction that you want to go yeah. necessarily. I love that. And that's great. That's, that's an awesome quote. 
And yeah, that's one of my I, favorites, I, honestly, about this game. <laughs> dude, like, the more I read about this, the more excited I'm getting. Because, I, I again, I have not done, like, research on a game like this and, and had more of, like, a this is cool. Like, whatever ends up happening in the playthrough and whatever I feel like they ended up, you know, succeeding on the execution of it, like, the concepts they're playing with, the things they're talking about are, like, right up my alley. Mm-hmm. I just think yeah. that this is conceptually one of the most exciting projects that we have approached talking about and we've talked about some really great stuff on this podcast so uh i'm i'm super excited for it and i'm glad that it's a little bit outside of some of the uh maybe philosophically redundant or repetitive kind of stuff that we've been playing for the last couple years um i just i can't really stress enough how excited i am playing this game um now They do start getting into, uh, you know, some of the concern they began to have about will this game actually sell? Uh, <laughs> while, while 2K was, and, and they they're very like upfront about the fact that they can't believe that they took some of the risks that they did and that they gave yeah. us as much freedom as they did. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this balance where, like, at some point, you're playing around with someone else's money. And yeah. <laughs> like they're gonna, you know, be tracking this along the way and and trying to find out, okay, what should we expect as far as the return on this investment? Yeah. And so this is where they essentially decided that they were gonna force a multiplayer mode into the game because that's what so many players would suspect or yeah. expect from a war shooter during this time. And so I, I just love some of these Corey Davis quotes about the <laughs> multiplayer. They're very blunt. Um, yeah. While at the same time not necessarily being disrespectful to 2K, he's, he's very respectful and, and thankful to them for letting him do what he did. But um, he says uh, uh, 2K should have allowed Spec Ops Online to stand as a single player experience in spite of the market studies and the sales expectation pointing to the necessity of a multiplayer component. The multiplayer mode of Spec Ops the Line was never a focus of the development, but the publisher was determined to have it anyway. It was literally a checkbox that the financial predictions said we needed, and 2K was relentless in making sure that it happened, even at the detriment of the overall project and the perception of the game. Um, against his wishes, development on the multiplayer component proceeded and was farmed out to a couple different studios before ending up with Darkseid. The result, according to Davis, was a low-quality Call of Duty clone in third person, which tossed out the creative pillars of the product. product. It sheds a negative light on all of the meaningful things we did in the single-player experience. Right, because it's all about just... Having fun shooting people, Mm -hmm. people, right? It totally betrays the the core theme. The multiplayer game's tone is entirely different. The game's mechanics were raped to make it happen, and it was a waste of money. No one is playing it, and I don't even feel it's part of the overall package. It's another game rammed on, onto the disc like a cancerous growth, threatening to destroy the best things about the experience that the team at Jaeger put their heart and souls into creating. Wow. That is one of my favorite quotes <laughs> from any game it's designer intense, ever. intense, dude. Wow. Yeah. And he was know, not he, happy about it. He's right, and not only is it like you know, damaging to the soul of the game or whatever. Like, theoretically, it's easy enough to just separate them, right? Like, forget the multiplayer exists, just focus on the single player and what it's saying. Forget that part. Yeah. But that's not, like, 
how that, that's how we can approach video games as kind of an art form, right? Like when I did a video about the story of Halo 2, I didn't talk about Blood Gulch. That was sure. just not part of it. But it's not how games work as like a consumer product. There are a lot of reviews of Spec Ops The Line that docked points because the multiplayer. Because the multiplayer. And yeah. like huh. that sucks that I had see. it just been a single player experience. I guess I could probably see some places having been like, eh, we should have had multiplayer, but like at least there wouldn't yeah. have been a bad thing on there, right? Like right. they could have just given yeah. it the score it deserved for what it was instead of docking it for something that shouldn't have been there. In the and that place. hurts sales too, because I'll when the Metacritic, yeah. I mean, this is a whole controversy right now. I, I guess there was some kind of leak where certain publications were being paid by publishers to oh, right. give good reviews yeah. and things like that, right? That's right because yeah. that matters, like that Metacritic score, like influences whether mm. people want to buy the game or not, particularly at launch. And so this game ended up with like a 75 Metacritic score, mm. but it's also considered one of the one of the best game narratives ever. That's and so, so that and I think you're right. I didn't even I didn't even put that together. That's probably just due to the multiplayer being as bad as it was. Yeah. And if it hadn't have been in there, I probably would have scored a lot better. So they yeah. actually hurt themselves sales-wise by forcing this in there, <laughs> rather because their their yep. you know prediction said it needed to be there. That's crazy. Yeah, that's it, true. It just really, is a whole. Yeah, it's it's bad. It uh, that that is important. It is also bad. Like you can play it. Spec Ops has a lot of strengths, but gameplay is not one of them. Gameplay is I've heard that yeah. kind of middling. And frankly, you could argue that is a strength. You know, if it's the super most fun ever shooter to play, then that doesn't necessarily speak to its thematic strengths but it works fine in a single player context in a multiplayer <laughs> in a multiplayer context that is pretty much all that matters right if you're yeah. not having a really great time mechanically then what's yeah. even the point what's at that point, point it was a, you know mediocre gears of war clone with call of duty paint on it yeah that, just yeah no, no one's interested in that i can't tell you how many times when i worked at gamestop people would come in like looking for a game like call of duty and i'd give them this and inevitably they'd come return it to saying the multiplayer wasn't any fun and i'm sitting here like that's not why i suggested it to you yeah. that's so funny <laughs> you know it's funny Honestly, that job was fun in terms of hi that job was fun in terms of getting to like when you actually did get to really give people something that they wouldn't have tried but really enjoyed it was great yeah, but yeah. there's also a lot of times when you know you, you pour your heart and soul into trying to find something that someone will like and then they're like oh well i sold spec ops a while a few years ago and i regret that i'll just buy spec ops uh, spec ops sorry uh black ops black ops. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like rebuy a call of duty game they've already played instead of all the cool stuff that you're trying to recommend to them it yeah. sort of breaks your soul yeah. a little bit <laughs> yeah that's funny this brings up the question though just in general of just how exactly you one should go about reviewing something like a like mm -hmm. a game right like if you've got this like work of art masterpiece and then there's this With other cancerous growth game, on it yeah that's like separate <laughs> that's like a different thing you have to judge it as a whole package you have to yeah. it's all it's one thing right and so even though the game likely would have scored a lot better you you can't just say oh for this one thing it did really good therefore the game's a 10 out of 10 right you right mm -hmm. like it and it's so funny because as what we're doing here when we analyze we're all about authorial intent at least in part as we analyze it we got we want to keep it in mind but you know when a game first comes out these metacritic guys like they don't they don't they don't know, know 
much yeah. like these interviews maybe some of them had happened previous to the game coming out but most of them would not have been available um and nobody knows that this was just what the the but even if even if they knew that this is just what 2k wanted um it's still part of the game you still have to review it as as part of the game and yeah, yeah. it brings it down right that's just like tough i guess but as that's far as what we're doing analyzing just the story see we get to just ignore it and we, we can <laughs> we can rate this game completely independent of that well, knowing I would be, intent and being more focused on story i would be um, so interested in whether or not multiplayer is even still like supported like can yeah, you still play multiplayer anymore. it doesn't well, even I would work assume right? local well, uh, can it, you play? I forget if it local had local multiplayer? multiplayer, but if no. so, then sure, that would work. But yeah, servers are are not. Up yeah, that, not it's not even. It's not even. Camera. They've removed. They've like removed the cancerous growth from the game. It it now oh, no cool. longer exists <laughs> in there, right? <laughs> yet, yet the Metacritic score stands. I yeah. know it sucks. It, it's worth noting too that like there's <sighs> games writing and games criticism has been in has been growing similarly to games themselves yeah. growing just in terms of like what hi nutmeg this is my cat she's a pain um <laughs> it was for so long exclusively focused on looking at games as a consumer product i'm just going to be mm. pushing this cat away the entire rest of the time i love you nutmeg but go away <laughs> like these reviews existed to answer the question should i buy this game yeah, right, right, like right. When right. it comes down to it, that is what they were interested in. It was a problem I ran into when I, because I did actually teach a video game literature class and uh, at the like yeah, junior high that. school level quite a few years yeah, ago. Yeah. And it was one of the things that I had to deal with when it came to essays. I would give them a prompt like, "Hey, we played Beyond Good and Evil. Give me an essay about Jade's personal character growth over the course of the story." And then they'd be like, "Well, the graphics were pretty good. I found a glitch here." <laughs> I, was, I was like, "Guys, middle school, man." Yeah, that's the th and you know they eventually figured it out and it was really great and rewarding right. seeing them do that. But like, cool. for a while, that was the only way that we knew to talk to talk critically about games, right? And yeah. we were in the process of yeah. breaking out of that when Spec Ops: The Line came out. But I think we were still very much in the process. Hell, we're still very yeah. much in the process. We're in it better. Like a lot of major video game review websites and stuff actually do effort to provide real criticism aside from just, is this game worth your money? But, mm. you know, there's still a major media literacy problem in video gaming communities. There's still a big emphasis yeah. on, you know, does this game entertain me for long enough to be worth $60 or whatever? You know, we're still growing, but I feel yes. like it was and, and less grown then. So. That's true. The, the idea of like what's the moral of the story and that the moral can be found outside of the actions of the main character right right like that yeah, you know right a lot of people right. just they, they just can't go there because that's not yeah. how they think right yeah. so another good quote here that sort of supports what we were talking about a minute ago it says so there's a lot of options and what we want to present the, to the player is that the, this is really what spec ops is about how war affects good people in worsening situations, mm -hmm. it can lead to a totally contrasting moment or totally contrasting moments. And then the interviewer asks, so moments like this result in different outcomes and effectively shape the story? He says, there's a recurring theme through the narrative and the moral choices exemplify it and are going to make it different for players. Every player is going to have a unique experience defined by these moments. That first playthrough is really critical. It's going to be great when players go back to see what they, what they could have done but that first playthrough is going to be your experience of the game. 
people are going to have their ups and downs or their own ups and their own downs. So there's a, a few more quotes like that. They were really kind of pressing this point about there being choices and that it will you'll have a different experience based on how you go about it. But yeah. I feel like they almost got away so much from presenting it like we're used to with here's option A and B, choose one, mm-hmm. that a lot of people might not have even known that they could make a choice other than what uh, Conrad's telling you to do or something like that, right? And so they just kind of do what he, what he like says yeah. and, and not realize, oh, maybe I could have done something totally outside of the box with that and just didn't even realize it was a choice. Yeah. And it really is like, I, I think... The way that they're talking about it, the way that we're used to developers talking about choice in video games and stuff, it does sound almost like maybe they had to scale some things back or something. But I I really do. 2012? Yes. Okay. And I, uh, I, I, but I really do think that if one is willing to like really put some thought and reflection into the choices uh, that the game makes and the choices that they make in the game, even if they're not hugely impacting to the game story or whatever that those claims would still hold up honestly like that Mm. those choices will at the very least shape the way that you are approaching the narrative and the way that you think about the events happening in such a way that really can alter your perception of it in a lot of ways it's hard to talk about without getting into specific details but yeah (laughs) we'll get back to that later i guess (laughs) And in there's there's one more thing kind of on the back of this that I read here that made me consider like there may be some places where they do this and maybe people didn't realize or maybe it's just not as um, it doesn't feel like as much of, a, of an impact on the story as maybe they're hoping. But there are other places where they really gateway you into a choice. You don't really have a choice. It has to go this way. Yeah. And so he was asked about that and he said. Uh, it could be looked at as a bit of a cheat on our end, right, as storytellers, that the game has led you in this sense, absolutely, but so does life. And so I kind of liked that response to that, where it's like, uh, if that's going to be a criticism to these specific points where you're kind of forced to go this way, well, life does that to you all the time as well. So, like, you don't have you know, a perfect set of options placed in front of you and all the time in the world to deliberate and sit here and think about it. Sometimes you're forced to just, you react to something and that that's just the way life goes. So I kind of liked that as a response to that. Yeah, yeah, that it, sounds great. That, that is one of the, one of my go-to defenses of a number of like choice. Be- Not make, stop moving my camera around. Sorry, <laughs> cats are great and I love them. Um, uh, do a number of choice-based games that a lot of people tend to have a negative opinion of, uh, yeah. or at least that people criticize for not, you know, having your choices matter, right? Things like Telltale's The Walking right. Dead Season 1 or uh, Dragon Age 2. Sure. Games that are very explicitly, in part at least, about the fact that you do not always have control over what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then people are all like, oh, well, the choices didn't let me end the game however I wanted. And I'm like, yeah, no, that would ruin everything. That would defeat the purpose. It's not about that. Like, imagine a Walking Dead game where it's just like, all right, you made all the right choices. Everyone's saved and everything's happy. Like, (laughs) that's not how that works. Other characters are going to make other decisions. And if part of the point of the story is that that's not in your hands then yeah, of course the game's choices aren't necessarily going to allow complete control. 
when they get yeah. off of the seat. I, I, you know I think that that <laughs> I think that that kind of plays into we, we were talking a little bit earlier. I think about how games are sort of maturing into you know like especially the shooter genre before this versus like what it's hopefully it, it's it's made some strides as far as uh, that sort of almost like propaganda-esque, like heroic sort of like depiction of war versus how it really affects people, right? Um, But games for so long have essentially existed as power fantasies for players. I mean, like um, the majority of them are this. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe that's the issue is that we're conditioned to think about them as power fantasies and we need more games of this kind to sort of break that mold and to get people to think differently about them and to take them more seriously as art, which is, you know, going to make a commentary on like Im- important issues that yeah. make us challenge our worldviews versus just letting us live these power fantasies, right? To that point, I recommend when you watch uh, Apocalypse Now that you watch the extended cut if you can. Oh, I've um, heard. Yes, I've heard. Because there, I mean, for a number of reasons, but there is a scene there that I find very interesting specifically to that point regarding a bunch of, uh, like, uh, like a French family that started a plantation, you know, here in the middle of Vietnam. Like, not right. their land, just a place that they thought they could come in and do this. And their, like, entitlement is to, like, well, it this you know this is going to treat me well right like this is how it's supposed to to be is that i'm gonna be the hero of the situation essentially and the Mm -hmm. parallels there i think are interesting yeah for sure okay there's just one more thing i want to read here and again i think this is kind of interesting our our conversation has gone this way the question (laughs) is do you want to make people feel bad about their actions in this game that's the direct question and this is uh, Williams responding, Walt Williams. Williams, I want them to feel something about the actions that they take. I use the word bad because of how differently we view war in games and in real life. Even people who intend to support war understand that war in the real world is horrible. It's not easy for anyone on either side of the conflict. I just want them to feel I feel like with so many military shooters, we sit down and we put ourselves in the shoes of someone going through combat, yet, yet we don't feel anything other than the exhilaration of being on a roller coaster. You hold your mm. hands in the air and go, wee, wasn't that fun? I don't want them to feel as bad as, I don't want them to feel bad as long as they're feeling that what they're doing in the game is actually causing real consequences, yeah. that this isn't existing mm. entirely for their entertainment. No matter what they feel, as long as it's something, I'm happy. Everyone is going to have a different experience. Through focus testing, we found that everyone has their own reception, depending on the personal morals of the player. I think that's fantastic. If we weren't, if we were getting uniform reactions across the board, that means we've made a story that is guiding everyone down one linear emotional path. Instead, we've created a space for gamers to examine their feelings. And I think ultimately, that's what we have to do with a game like this. We're not making a statement. We want players to come to their own conclusions. I think that is a perfect response to that specific criticism, right? I 
really love that mm. he used the term specifically there, like on one linear emotional path. Yes. Like, yeah, because yeah, the game overall is going to follow a certain story. You're going to have to do things that even if you as the player think, I don't want to do this, this is messed up. You know, it's part of it. You're going to have to, but mm. it's not so much about like, Oh, I wish the game let me do something else because that would ruin the point of the game. It's, about how you respond to it it's it's very much it's fun how explicit he is about this like just about how much this game is about tearing down all the walls that exist specifically to make you feel comfortable in the game you're playing in the space that you're inhabiting mm-hmm. and instead just like get rid of the illusion to let you see what's actually happening instead of trying to spin it for you you know right. and then right. to see how you respond to that and a lot of people i, I don't want to like make accusations or whatever i guess like i feel like a lot of people felt bad doing it and got defensive mm-hmm. like yeah um, that makes a lot I, of I sense i don't actually. like this it's the game's fault why is it yes. doing this to me? they like, wanted me to feel this way instead of yeah. you feel this way the main me that means something about you look inside yeah. face yep. that you know <laughs> and like the idea that mm you know they feel guilty and they assume that it's the game telling them that they made a wrong choice instead of the game asking them to analyze what that feeling is like this is absolutely one of those scenarios where like we identify with the character on screen because we inhabit them on some level right even in games where there's no narrative thing like i remember when i was a kid my uh my mom saw me playing spyro year of the dragon at one point uh i was playing one of the levels where you're like uh that monkey with a little laser gun um and i was just shooting out all these windows or whatever with my laser gun because they gave me gems and my mom asked me why is that monkey shooting out the windows and it took me like it took me a second to process (laughs) what that question even was because i was like what do you mean the monkey that's me like yeah you know we, we always have this we are on some level inhabiting this character so even when the narrative isn't asking us to we are doing it on some level and spec ops is definitely one of those games that wants that inhabiting of the character to feel uncomfortable in a way that makes Mm. you think yeah for that matter there were a number of games coming out around this time that did that the last of us played with that too yeah um honestly it's one of my favorite things for games to do like to yeah yeah like it's great so uh yeah all right. Well, that's I think I, I've a got good... one last note. Go, this oh, okay, is, go ahead. This is very similar to. Well, I've got two last things to say, but one last note, and then this goes along with everything that we're saying. And this is from um, Williams' uh, book. So shout ah. out to Mix for uh, uh, sending me some quotes from the book because I'm not reading mm. it. <laughs> but this was very interesting. Uh, he says, for Spec Ops, we decided the moral choices couldn't just be dark and gritty. To do that would have been exploitation. Shock mm. for shock's sake, right? Yeah. And that's what people are accusing him of. And he's saying, no, no, we didn't do that. If we wanted our game to truly be compelling, the underlying question of our choices couldn't be what's right and what's wrong. And see, that's the dichotomy that we're all stuck inside yes, right now. Yes, mm-hmm. He says, yes. we needed to attack the core of our own game by asking the player, what are you going to do with that gun in your hand? Mm-hmm. And that's it. Now, Now, just thinking of that question, what are you going to do with that gun in your hand? There's a thousand ways to just like imagine where, where that sentence can take you. Yeah. Um, it can take you all over. Like if I, if I think about like in a, like in a movie, like let's say I'm freaking Jason Bourne or something, right? <laughs> like, okay, sweet. 
I'm in a movie. I've got this gun. All right. What am I really gonna do this? <laughs> right? Am I do I am I sure? Am I just gonna like shoot a bunch of people and I know for sure that I'm always gonna hit the right people and am I even willing to take that risk and like just just the have you guys ever like held a, a gun before? Yeah. Yeah and, and shot a gun before? Mm-hmm. The, the, range, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm assuming, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, actually, a roommate of ours, my, um, when me and Mike lived in the same place, um, a roommate of ours had an AK-47, and we got to shoot oh, that. That was, <laughs> that was wild. Um, the power that you feel yeah. just right. holding a gun is just like, whoa. Like, it's almost like uh, Frodo with the one ring, where Gandalf's like, don't come to me, Frodo. It's yeah. like, right. whoa. The, like, just the, there's the subtlest temptation to maybe do something wrong and you just and just the thought that maybe you could do it and and just like it's just like it's almost too much to even like consider right like like the 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 um the power that that this simple object affords you is overwhelming like it's it's just crazy you almost need to be like in awe of this type of power because it's just the destructive potential is is so high um, and then the question is, oh, you've got a gun. What are you going to do with it, right? Oh, well, of course, I'm going to follow all the rules and I'm going to shoot down range. But what could you do with it? Yep. You know, a lot as... of things, a lot of things, <laughs> right? And it's almost too much to bear. But as game players, we don't really think of that. We're like, oh, I got a gun. Sweet. Let's go around. Pew, pew, pew. But it's like, no, in real life, like this is a, this, it's heavy, man. It really, it, it can really weigh on you if you overthink it, which I, the, yeah. other, the other crucial part of that, I think, is that it's not, would you like a gun and what would you do with it? It's what will you do with the gun in your hand? There's a presumption. Yes. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is yeah. what we're doing. And that, you know, that and, is such a video game thing. Like this is a game totally. about using Having a, gun. a gun yeah, yeah. that, that and is then the, not optional like it's mm-hmm. not just what are you going to do it's and how are you so sure that you did the right thing yeah. right now having done the thing you're going to do with it and, and and like are you really are you ready for that <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh exactly. man this is wild okay um i have one last thing now and okay, this is because it. this episode has gone in in such an interesting direction i absolutely <laughs> love it i think this has been really cool very fun yeah um but I am slightly concerned. Uh, so, what are the odds, uh, Samuel, that we have kind of like spoiled the whole game for ourselves just by researching the dev history? Uh, on a significant level, the odds are a hundred percent. Like in terms of exactly what's going to happen, no, there will still be some twists and events that you don't expect. But okay. it is very much a game that spends its first couple hours of gameplay essentially masquerading as a you know mid call of duty clone okay and that dimension when it comes down to it like i don't know how much more you ruined it by uh researching than you have ruined it by existing in a world where spec ops has been a thing for 10 years like it okay is pretty much impossible to come into this game at this point without at the very least knowing this isn't going to be as straightforward as I think bad things are going to happen. Right. And I'm going to feel okay. bad about it, you know, like, yeah. gotcha. I, so that part of it, at least that subversive element is something that you're kind of going to need to try and like put yourself in the mindset of, well, if I didn't know this already, right. um, we're pretty good at that. Yeah. yeah. It's very much one of those things, yeah. you know, it's just like, it's impossible to go into to see star Wars for the first time without knowing that Darth Vader's Luke's father, right? Like some things, <laughs> yes. Ah, spoilers, spoilers. Things, you, right. just, you just know it before you see it, right? Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's, well, 
out there. Everyone has already talked about it. So as cool as it would be to go into Spec Ops 100% blind, I actually have a friend who I'm hoping will do that soon. Apparently she doesn't know anything about it, and I keep trying to be like, play it next, play it next. But, but, you know, it's one of those things where if you know what it's doing and you're not expecting that it's supposed to make you feel bad by giving you choices or whatever, then, like, you can still appreciate what it's doing for sure. Cool. I mean, basically, the reason I'm asking is because we are putting this online and we typically ask people to play along with us um, as we do these things. And um, we the way we analyze games is we research dev history and we look into authorial intent in doing so. And there was really no avoiding it this time. Um, So it's possible. what 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 do you think about putting maybe a spoiler warning on just yes. this episode and saying hey so. there there is an element to this where if you don't know anything about it at all it could be beneficial to go totally yeah. blind and yes. exactly. know that if you before want to you play watch along, this episode maybe go in blind and then watch this is right spoiler warning to do yeah in fact i think maybe we i might want to record something and put that at the beginning here or okay. maybe we could just i don't know um but um that or maybe we could just do it in the title but yeah i think that would be very important um because you know some people just want to play along and don't want it to be spoiled that being said this is a short game so i don't know yeah. it shouldn't be too big of a deal um yeah. and i still really have no idea what i'm in for yeah. <laughs> and remember well, i'm excited when, like, the average game was this long you could i know right with the story i, like, I missed right, that you know, so like much eight hours or so of yeah eight hours <laughs> as opposed to now you pick up any random like mid-grade triple-a game in gamestop or whatever and it's like all right 30 hours giant open world not that great yeah. a game. that's just what i'm gonna do yeah i miss it i miss the the succinct game experience where you just play it over a weekend and you you know you can yeah. beat it <laughs> yeah um anyway appreciate you coming on with us sam i think this has been one of my favorite conversations i've had uh on the podcast actually i just feel i feel so excited about playing this game right now yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna excited. i'm gonna close this down and i'm probably yeah. gonna boot it up and like <laughs> get I mean, started I, so I, I hope it's not a letdown in comparison to the excitement then but yeah hey, i'm really you know, excited to hear what you two end up thinking of it great as you go good through it. it's such a yeah. there's so much to talk about with it and so much like critical analysis of it of varying degrees of getting the point or missing it it's, yeah it's a lot it's one of my favorite games to talk about for sure awesome and uh for anybody watching this make sure and go check out sam's channel it's called oh. games as literature and he's got a great video on spec ops that you should probably check out once you've played the game um just be aware but... that it's probably gonna say all the things that i'm gonna end up saying in this <laughs> in these episodes but you know <laughs> all right that's fine that's cool Um, And we will see you guys again next week. Sam's going to join us again uh, to uh, talk with us about it as we go through um, the story and break it down and summarize it and dissect it. So we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for watching. Peace out.